Good morning. I'm Leland Brown, the community groups and young adults pastor here at East Cooper. Uh, Buster's on the West Coast, so I get to share the word with you this morning. If you would uh, grab your Bibles or your mobile apps and go to Isaiah 6. That will be our text this morning. Uh, if, you, if you don't know where Isaiah is, Isaiah uh, is right kind of in the middle of your Bible. It is after uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's before all of the uh, minor prophets whose names you forget or don't know. Um, and as you get there uh, to Isaiah 6, I just want to confess to you that I really don't enjoy election years. I don't enjoy all the intensity and the division, but I do think there is one thing that most Americans, wherever they are politically, share in an election year, and that is a deep concern about an uncertain future. And I say that just because uh, this is a significant part of our, con- our passage's context. Uh, and the first phrase we read that this is the year King Uzziah died. Uh, the death of a king was always an unstable time for a monarchy. And this particular king was very strong. And at this time in Judah's history, they had a northern neighbor and a giant empire threatening their existence. So there's a lot of people worried about what the next four years in Judah look like when this passage is written. And God appears. And what he does in a time of deep political uncertainty and tension might surprise us. Let's see what happens. Isaiah 6. We'll read the whole passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear, hear with their ears. Sorry, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until city lie, cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Lord, even after a brief reading of this passage, It is quite clear um, that we don't deserve to see you and we're apart from Jesus, not even fit in your presence. So, but, but Lord, we thank you for Jesus and I pray that in the Spirit's power in his name that you would enable us to see you this morning. I pray you would be merciful, you'd open our eyes, that you would meet us in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm not sure how your pandemic experience began last March. Mine began standing over my one-day-old son who was ventilated and just watching him cry with all these tubes and wires on him and me being unable to, t to, to do anything. I, uh, my job in that room was just to try not to cry in front of our nurse. And then, literally overnight, he's healed. We take him home three days later and he is the easiest baby on planet Earth. Life goes on. We're in baby land. Things are fine. And then, as you remember, in April, the entire world shuts down. And a part of the entire world shutting down is that people forgot for a few weeks to tithe. And so we're at the church and we start having all these scary conversations about the budget. And I distinctly remember being in the room of my garage thinking, okay, if this is the last paycheck I ever receive from East Cooper, stay-at-home dad, Uber Eats driver, you know, like, what am I going to do? And um, that's what I do when I panic, I plan. And um, then we take a breath, people remember to tithe, and life's peachy. In fact, uh, a few months go by and we're, we're back at the office and, um, you know, wearing masks and all that good stuff, but we're, we're, life is getting back to normal. And then one Sunday we're at home doing virtual church and Sarah isn't feeling super well. And three days later, we get our positive COVID tests back. We both have the coronavirus. I get like a walking flu with all these weird symptoms. Sarah gets really sick. And so um, I am chasing my three kids trapped in the house, feeling like I'm gonna die. Um, and Sarah's the one in our family who keeps me from reading articles on the internet about the coronavirus. And so I'm not just, watching her be sick and having no idea. I'm reading about all the terrible things the coronavirus can do to you forever. And then a month goes by, we're better. We even celebrate by taking a family vacation to Myrtle Beach because now we're immune and that's okay. Um, life, it just feels so good to be back to normal for a few more weeks and then one day I am heading over to the church to do something and I feel like someone is standing on my chest and I can't breathe. And um, of course, thinking these are the dreaded COVID side effects you read about in the, you know, that article. And I go to my doctor and she says, actually, you're fine. That was probably a panic attack. And uh, apparently 2020 has been bad for my mental health. I don't know about you. A month later, I'm okay. And the buster asked me to preach and I'm crazy again, just kidding. Um, and, and through all this, I have, been, I have been so grateful that God in his kindness has delivered and, and blessed us and, and just, he's been so kind. But in those moments before my prayers were answered and before we were delivered, I felt like the Lord was walking me up to a very high and steep ledge and letting me look over into the darkness of what my life could become, what could happen. And then he pulled me back. As I looked over in the ledge, there was a question that I have been trying to answer this year. And that is this, what if? What if your baby dies? What if your wife dies? What if you lose your job, your health, your mental health? Will I be enough for you then? Will you still trust me? Will you still walk with me? Will you love me? And uh, what I love about this text is that it is written to 
God's people, when they were on the ledge, they didn't know it, but they were on the ledge, and Isaiah's gonna be sent, and he's gonna watch them get cast over. And God answers this question of, will I be enough? Can you trust me? With a vision of himself. If you've got questions, man, seeing God is the answer. Now, of course, I recognize your 2020 might be a lot different. You might, you might have had a great year. You might be fine. And we also see, if that's you, you too need to see God. We'll see where in a little bit. Three parts of this passage. First is what we see when we see God. Second is what we say when we see God. And third is what we hear when we see God. First, what we see. What we see. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. When we see God, we see a king ruling, filling everywhere with his glory. That's what we see. Notice uh, this word translated Lord here is a word that means master or sovereign. The idea is, hey, the king's died, but the master sits on the throne. He's ruling. Notice God is sitting Okay, he's not like looking over being like, oh, 2020 was bad. Sorry, guys. He's not groaning during a presidential debate. He's not, he's not concerned about what might happen. No, he is sitting, accomplishing his purposes, completely in control, ruling as he wills, bringing everything to the counsel of his will. Notice also he's, his glory and majesty is pressing upon Isaiah. It says... Um, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, there's a lot of stuff here, but the, the, the train of a robe was just the edge of the garment. Like if I pulled my shirt out, the edge of it would be the train. Uh, but this was a robe, and in the ancient world, king, the size of a king's robe indicated his majesty. God's, the, the edge of God's robe fills the space he's in. His, if you're in God's presence, his majesty presses upon you. Church, in the madness that seems to be American life at this moment, in the most minute details over your life, see the king ruling. He's sovereign, he's in control. You may not be able to figure out how the things going on in your life are good and working together for God's purposes, but you can see him ruling. Now, for some of you, I know this is going to be a problem, that God is sovereign and ruling. You look around at our world today, you look around at the mess of your life, and you think, how is it good news that God's in control of all this? Well, the next thing we see when we see God is that God is burning with goodness and love. We see his holiness on display here. Notice verse 2. Above God, there are these angelic beings called the seraphim, uh, these are very uh, interesting angelic uh, beings. They, um, their name translated means fire, or you could translate it the, the burning venom of a serpent. These beings are intensity incarnate. If one appeared, worship service over, you guys are fleeing for your lives. And they, when they are in God's presence, there is something so intense, they cover their faces. They dare not look. They cover their feet. But notice, they don't just cover their eyes, they also sing. 
There's something so beautiful and compelling in God's presence. They just can't help but sing. What do they sing of? Look at verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They sing of God's holiness. And what is holiness? Now, this is very important to define because we use that phrase here in America called holier than thou. Like holiness is like self-righteousness or it's uptightness or it's mustiness or something. That holiness is some unattractive quality. Well, uh, in the scriptures, holy, to be holy is to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct. To say that God is holy is to say that he is the most, he is the utterly set apart being. And what is it that set God, sets God apart? First John 4, 8, one of the few verses in the scriptures that describes God's very nature, says God is love. It is God's love. It's his goodness, his moral purity, the fact that he never does anything that's wrong, that he's always overflowing with love. That's his holiness. Holiness is goodness on fire. It's love like a hurricane, like the song says. Now, and I know, in a year full of wildfires and hurricanes, those images are hard to swallow, but they get at the idea that God's love and his goodness are intense qualities of his. They're not the safe qualities. I think uh, sometimes when we conceive of God's love, we conceive of um, a grandparent's love, you know, that gives ice cream for breakfast and that, uh, that you know, always lets you watch TV. And I, I'm thankful my kids have grandparents. They're actually here today. I'm really thankful for you guys and that my kids get to enjoy that. But the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, when you see it, it's not comfortable. It's not safe. It is so utterly unique. There is a danger about it. And yet, if you're in its presence, it's so beautiful. You can't help but sing. You're compelled to sing. There is an undeniable beauty and an undeniable fear in God's presence. Maybe the most silly thing that grieves me as a pastor is that nobody reads good fiction anymore. And I know like there's like 10% of you being like, amen, pastor, and the rest of you are like, fiction. Like, who reads fiction? Anyways, and no one reads the Chronicles of Narnia anymore. And so I make a resolution to always quote the Chronicles of Narnia when I preach. And uh, I'll stop when you guys start reading them, okay? Anyways, um, in my favorite Chronicle of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, um, sorry, back up. Uh, in the world of Narnia, if you're not familiar, C.S. Lewis, the author, sets up a fascinating picture of the Lord Jesus in that Jesus uh, is depicted as the lion Aslan. And all of Aslan's subjects are little animals, not all of them, but like they're animals like horses and beavers and rabbits and all these creatures that a lion normally eats. So you've got the prey worshiping the predator. Interesting. Um, and in The Horse and His Boy, there are two horses. One is named Bree. He's this older, pretty theologically orthodox horse, like reasonable in his faith. And there's this younger horse named Wynn. This kind of sweet, uh, simple girl horse has been uh, on this journey. And they've been chased and attacked by lions through the journey. So they're having this theological conversation. Um, is Aslan really a lion? Like a beast with claws and teeth and scary? Like, no way, Bree says. He says, that's just the way we speak about his strength. That's just an image. And as he's talking and giving his fantastic theological discourse, 
Aslan himself appears. As Lewis says, a lion brighter yellow, bigger, more beautiful, more alarming than any lion they had ever seen. And Aslan sneaks up on Bree as he's talking about how surely the lion thing's just an image and touches him, and the theologian runs for his life. And his friend, Wynne, for a moment stands in stunned awe. But then she trots over to Aslan, right next to his jaws, and says this, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you wish. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. The beauty is so compelling. When you see God, you come without conditions. You come recognizing there is some danger. You come and you say, Lord, you can destroy me. I would rather be destroyed by you, Lord, than blessed and provided for and given a great life by anyone else. That is what it's like to see God. If you think I'm crazy, consider the words of Job. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Believer, right now, in your questions, in your grumblings, in those things that make you stay up at night, yell, weep, what you need first it's not solutions to your problems. It's not deliverance from the things you're frustrated with. I hope you get those things. I pray you do. What you need first is to see God. If you can see God, you can do anything. You can endure anything. The sight of him is so compelling, you'll submit to anything that happens in your life. And you will have him, beauty himself, as your portion. He's yours to enjoy. And notice how this picture of God's burning goodness and his, and his love that is so intense it's hard to be in the presence of, it comes right along with his rule. God's rule is good. It is impossible for God to do bad to you. It's impossible for him not to rule justly. He is goodness and love. I know it's been a crazy year. I know we've got a fuzzy horizon that scares a lot of us. God's rule is good. Wherever he takes us, if we get thrown over the ledge, he's good. So what do we see when we see God? We see the unspeakable beauty of a king ruling in holiness. Next, we'll see what we say when we see God. It's quite simple. Isaiah says this in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Before we unpack this statement, it's pretty straightforward. I think it's important to notice a couple things that Isaiah doesn't say in God's presence. First, notice that Isaiah is not casual. He's not, oh, hey, God, so nice to see you again. I'm glad you're always here when you need me. I know it's been a while. I've been busy. Could you please answer these prayers? I've been asking for this stuff for a long time. Now, there's no, there's no experience like you get in like a country song about God here. There's no casualness. There's no assumption, presumption that I'm, I'm cool to come in and be in your presence and ask you for stuff. 
Notice secondly, Isaiah is not focused on other people's sins. He's not coming into God's presence saying, Lord, can you believe those people? Or Lord, man, they just hurt me so bad. How, how can I forgive them? Isaiah only sees one person's sins, his own. And finally, and I'm going to camp here for a second because it's so important. Notice that Isaiah does not respond to God's presence by saying, I've been bad and I need to do better. Notice he's not saying, I'm guilty. Oh, man, I'm going to go home and I'm going to double up on my quiet times. I'm going to start sharing Jesus with people better. I'm going to get back in community. No, no, he's not resolving to do better here. He, and if that's, if that's you, listen, I say that because there's so many people in this room right now, me, so many times. You, you hear a sermon and you go home and say, oh, blew it again. I got I to try harder this week. And, and you live your Christian life. You open your Bible and say, oh, I missed it. I got to get better. And guys, that is not a response to God's presence and his grace. I want you to fight that in your life. It's not grace working in you. Why? It doesn't go nearly far enough to say that you're bad and you need help doing better. Notice that Isaiah does not see himself in the presence of rules that he's broken. He sees himself in the presence the consuming fire himself. He's not imperfect, needing some help getting better. He's ruined, needing salvation. And listen to me, the difference between being bad and needing help getting better and being ruined and needing to be saved is the difference between heaven and hell. It's that important. And why is Isaiah so convinced that he is ruined? Notice what he says. That little word for tells you that here's the reason why I'm so convinced I'm ruined. For I'm lost. And he says this. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice what particular sin Isaiah is so aware of in God's presence. His lips. What he said. Why is, why is his word such a big deal? Because you're complaining and you're grumbling is complaining and grumbling against the king ruling in beauty over your life. That snarky speech about your political opponent, you're talking to somebody made in the image of the king. The swear words under your breath, that nasty email, the disgust with which you speak of certain people in our nation, those things reveal what you really think of the king on his throne. That's what Isaiah sees. And guys, listen, I'm not talking, I'm talking to me, okay? I can't have one bad year without looking up into heaven and saying, what are you doing? One bad thing happens and I'm just grumbling. So all this being said, see a picture of a man before God who's seen God. He doesn't ask God that burning question that he wants to know when he gets to heaven. He's not telling God how to run the world. He's, he's undone. He's ruined. Even the words, I am lost, you could translate that, I'm speechless. I'm struck dumb. I have nothing to say. And listen, I know it's hard to go here, but this is the place that Isaiah experiences grace. It's not when he's making a case for how good he's been 
or he's celebrating how well life is going. It is here before God's presence when this prophet is convinced beyond a doubt of God's grace. Look what happens. Verses six to seven. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So just notice there's this fiery altar in God's presence that's an offering to him. And the, the, the seraphim who's made of fire, okay, that fire is so hot he needs tongs. So this is something burning. He eventually gets in his hands, I guess, playing hot potato, and he brings it to Isaiah. And the language here is he presses it into his mouth. He pushes it on his tongue. So think about molten lava poured down your throat, right? How does that go? For Isaiah, it doesn't destroy him. It cleanses him. God has revealed himself like this. He's revealed himself in fire, not to destroy, but to save. The consuming fire is a healing fire. It's a cleansing fire. And notice what the angel says to Isaiah. Notice the finality of what he says. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's finished. Isaiah's not gonna live his prophetic career working hard to please God, making sure he gets blessed. His guilt's atoned for, it's done. And this picture of grace picture of a man undone, lost, and then found. I believe this points us to another consuming fire straight from the presence of God that comes to sinful men, not to destroy, but to cleanse. Think about what we believe about God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity, always existing. Jesus, the Son, has always been in the consuming fire of God's presence. You know, like, like, like John 12, John 12 says that of this passage, Isaiah saw Jesus's glory and spoke of him. This is Jesus on the throne. And it's him who comes. You know, John the Baptist, when Jesus came, he said he's gonna burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist expected destruction when the Messiah came. And yet the fire comes from God's presence. And he hangs out with prostitutes and heals lepers and tenderly and patiently shepherds a bunch of stubborn, foolish disciples. Fire reveals grace. And uh, I just want, if you're here this morning and you're considering Jesus, maybe you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you thought you were a Christian for a long time and now you're seeing some things about God that make you uncomfortable, I just wanna say, he is here this morning. He's willing. I'm not saying you can come to him with conditions on how he better bless you. I'm not saying you can have your life as your own, but you can have cleansing. You can be free from your guilt. You can be changed, and as we'll see in a moment, you can be made ready and willing to do whatever God requires you. Just come, trust him. The fire cleanses, it's sufficient. This actually isn't a conversion story though. This is uh, Isaiah's been a believer. God's in fact revealing himself like this to encourage Isaiah to help him endure. I have a long history of trying to do house projects the cheapest and easiest way possible. You can imagine probably how that has gone. Uh, one story stands out into my mind. We had just um, 
we just bought our first house and it's day three of home ownership, the bliss of home ownership, right? And I walk up uh, to the microwave, open it to get some breakfast and I pull the handle off, just comes off. Like, like come on, we tested this thing like 10 times. Like what is going on? Anyways, uh, we look online, a replacement handle is $70. And so me, cheap, I say, no, we are not paying that. We are getting a new microwave. It's only like 10 more bucks, okay? So we get a new microwave. It's one of those ones you have to put over the stove, like drill into the wall, and it comes in this 100 pound box. Perfect. Um, I get the instruction manual out. It's about the length of the Old Testament. And, um, and in it uh, are all these like graphs and charts and like pictures of these tools. I don't know what they are. And like, here's how to drill it. Here's where to set the screws. Here's what to do. And I'm just like, I'll just do the best I can, you know, whatever. Like, and so, and then there's this like Leviticus sized part of the manual that is about how to install the vent fan. So like, I don't know if you guys know about microwaves, but they have little vents that shoot smoke out of your kitchen when you're cleaning, you know? And there's like three or four ways to put it on there. And the way I'm supposed to do it, I just can't figure it out. I'm like, I'm just over this. Like, I got stuff to do. So I just screw it in, it's fine. Three and a half hours later, at 10 p.m., my, uh, my wife is military pressing the 75 pound microwave for the 10th time as I futilely try to drill it into holes that I improperly uh, installed. After she threatens to end me, um, I relent and we go to bed. The next day, my brother comes over and we get it drilled in because he's not as hopeless at house projects as I am. To this day, you turn the vent fan on and it blows smoke in your face. The cheap and easy way never works. And yet, this room in my life is full of trying to live before God the cheap and easy way. We cheapen God's holiness thinking it will give us freedom to do what we want. We cheapen God's sovereignty so we don't have to ask all those difficult questions about what's going on in the world. We cheapen who we really are thinking it'll give us some self-esteem. And does it work? You know it doesn't work. Right? You, you try to live half cleansed because you see yourself as half lost. You get no comfort when you're suffering because you won't embrace the sovereignty of the king. The cheap and easy way to doing the Christian life does not work. Listen, I know entering God's presence like this, no conditions, um, saying, I'm lost, I'm ruined, I must be delivered. I know it's not comfortable. I know that may not be the dose of spiritual encouragement you wanted today, but this is the way to lasting life in the Lord, to genuine strength and endurance. You can be strong in your life in Jesus. I know, I know we're weak. You can find strength in the Lord. You can find peace in the mess of your life but it does not come the cheap and easy way. Just one more thing before we move on. As we see this scene of a man before God. In 2020, a couple weeks before a presidential election, this text is a very good reminder that the chief concern of the people in this room is, is men and women standing before the living God. Listen, what's the most important thing you should care about about politicians in our country? 
It is them here in this text on the day of judgment. What should be your chief concern as we navigate one of the weirdest years in history as your life's a mess? Your neighbors, your family members, your friends here in God's presence undone before him. Are they ready for that? Are you ready for that? Let that be the thing that keeps you up at night. That'll be a life well lived. Okay, so when we see God, we see a holy king ruling in beauty. When we see God, we say, I am lost. And then we're cleansed, we're found. Finally, we will see um, what we hear when we see God. It is a call to go and speak, no matter how hard, no matter what comes. Notice uh, Isaiah's been humbled, he's been cleansed, and in verse Eight, he hears the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah replies with, Here I am, send me. Do you guys notice that Isaiah is made willing to go by grace? That it's an experience of grace that enables him to go. Listen, I, speaking about Jesus has never been easy. It's not going to be easy. Living for other people, entering the mess of ministering to others and loving them and caring for them, that's not easy. But grace makes you willing to go. If you're not willing to go, I would say maybe you need to experience grace. Isaiah's call is probably harder than anything we will be called to do. Notice he is uh, particularly called in verse nine, I'll summarize these verses because they are difficult, but he's called to speak to the nation of Judah and tell them to keep hearing but not understand. He's called in verse 10 to make the hearts of the people he's listening to dull so they can't respond. Isaiah's like, what? He says in verse 11, he's like, how long, O Lord? Like, 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 what, what do you mean? This is my job. And God's answer to him is until the judgment is complete, until exiles happens, until like a tree that is cut down and then burned, that's what the nation becomes. But look at the very last verse in verse 13, the very last phrase, the holy seed is its stump. The idea of that verse is that from this burnt up stump that is God's people, I'm gonna grow a new tree. Mercy's coming, but Isaiah, you're not gonna see it, man. You're gonna be in this really tough time. What do we do with these verses, okay? So first of all, don't forget, we have just seen them in the context of God ruling in his utter goodness. God is being good to his people here people of Judah. Um, Think about it this way. Uh, The time for taking heart medication and doing your rehab is over. It hasn't worked for God's people. They haven't listened. They haven't responded. Now it's time for a 16-hour open heart surgery that almost kills the patient but saves his life. That's what's going on here. God knows his people. He is so after their good and their healing, he is willing to wound them almost to death. God wounds in order to heal. But second, for people living after Jesus, um, it's important to note that these verses are quoted in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are referring to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Isaiah. He came and spoke to a people who didn't listen. And in fact, he's a lot like that tree that's cut down and burnt. For others. And in doing that, he's opened up a new age. We don't, we don't live in these days. We're not, we're not Judah. We live in a day when people respond. It's a blessing. It's great. 
But still, um, we are still called to go and speak, even if people don't listen. We are still called to be faithful, even if nobody responds. This room has lots of people in it today whose love and whose prayers and whose words and whose ministry have been ignored. You took courage, you had that hard conversation, they blew up and won't speak to you ever again. You started talking about Jesus, they ghost you, they won't text you back. You started a community group, COVID killed it. That's my job right now, you know? <laughs> um, and here's what I wanna encourage you to do. When you find yourself in a place when you are being faithful to Jesus and nothing is happening, don't forget you are among the heroes of our faith. There is a category for ministry that does not have tangible results but has great rewards in heaven. Just keep being faithful. Don't set your eyes on if you're being effective or not. Don't live for that. Play for an audience of one. I think you'll find some courage there. As we close, um, I'm not sure where you are this morning. Maybe you're on the ledge, like I have been a few times this year. Maybe you're in the darkness. Maybe you're fine. Wherever you are, I think we've seen that what we need the most is to see God. If we can see him, we can endure, we can be saved, we can be humble, there's one more question though. How? How do we see God? What do, you, what do you do when you leave here? I really wish I had like three practical answers for you. I really wish I could just be like this, this, and this. But when it comes to seeing God, uh, there's no magical skill set. It's not the kind of thing where you do a couple of things so you can see God and then get back to the business of your life. No, no, no. For Christians, seeing God is the business of life. The prophet Jeremiah, who came after Isaiah and lived in the worst time in Judah's history, uh, writes a letter. The Lord speaks through him to the people of Judah who are now in exile, in the darkness. And he says this, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. All your heart. So simple, so hard. That is what it requires for you to see God. Seek him with all your heart. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open to you. Give your whole, help, whole self to seeing him. And you'll find the king ruling and the comfort there. You'll find genuine grace. You'll find cleansing. And after what we've seen this morning, I believe it's worth whatever it takes to see God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just, I just consider the words of David who said, one thing I ask of the Lord that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire of his temple. And I just confess to you, Lord, that I have not really been a person of one thing. And I just pray as we see a glimpse, just a, just a glimpse of your glory in this passage, I just, I just pray you would make us a people of one thing. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.